You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, I'll never forget the phone call. It was a summer day, and uh, my mom had gone to the hospital for some testing due to some medical issues that she was having. She called me that afternoon, and before I could even ask her how things had gone, she just blurted out really quickly, uh, Micah, it's pancreatic cancer, and it doesn't look good. Now, I wish I could say this was the first time that I'd gotten one of these calls. In truth, it was the third. When I was in college, my mom called me and she said, hey, Mike, I've got gallbladder cancer. She'd beaten that. And then in seminary, she called me and said, Mike, I have thyroid cancer. And she had beaten that. And she had hit a spot where they had declared her cancer-free. She'd been years and years at this point without any checkups, without any going back and seeing how things were going. And so truthfully, it was a bit of a shock. It was kind of a gut punch. We'd been taking steps at that moment to purchase a house here in Ohio that my mom was going to be able to come up and live with us. She was going to move up here from North Carolina and uh, spend time with us, living with us here. She put all that on hold. She said, you know, I'd rather be here with the doctors that I know. But not only was mom not going anywhere, we found out that the cancer was so aggressive that ultimately she was just going to do any care that was quality of life stuff until the end of her days. My brother lived a lot closer to my mom, and he took most of her care upon himself, and he and my sister, who lived nearby as well, they cared for her so well and so very often. I'm really thankful for them. But near the end of my mom's life, she went into at-home hospice care, and my sister called me one day, and she said, hey, you know, Micah, I think it's getting close. I think you need to come. So I hopped on a plane and I flew to Raleigh and when I walked in the door and I saw my mom, she was a shell of the woman that I had known. She was a shell of this spunky, boisterous woman that I had grown up knowing and loving. But as soon as I walked in the door, she did what I knew she was going to do. She began to razz me about my tattoos and crack jokes. One of her favorite pastimes. Our time together was really good. And in those final days that we had together, we had some really good days and we had some really bad days. But the time came soon for me to hop back on a flight here to Canton Akron. And that weekend, I was leading worship for men's breakfast. And whenever I was uh, leading worship that morning, I began to lead a song that was one of my mom's favorites called How Great Thou Art. And there's this moment in the song, many of you, who, if you know it or grew up with it, and the chorus just says, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And I still remember in the room, men across the room just had hands raised, they were just praising God, singing the song. 
And I had this sense in my spirit in that moment that my mom was doing the same thing. It was the strangest moment. But I'm sitting there and I'm leading it and I'm going, Mom is seeing this with Jesus right now. And I walk off stage and I see I've got a missed call from my brother. And so I call him back and he delivers the news that I knew was coming. That my mom had passed just a few minutes before and she passed in her sleep on her wedding anniversary. You know, grief is a weird thing, isn't it? Grief is kind of like the new kid at school. Like you, you, they come in and you're not sure if they're going to be your best friend and be helpful and you're going to have a great season together or if they're just going to like try to steal your lunch money. Um, you just don't know what to do with grief. And it comes in these very, very different waves. And for me in this season, grief looked different. I had moments where I was extremely thankful that my mom was in heaven worshiping Jesus, immediately followed by these throes of anger and frustration that, uh, that she'd had to go through any of that at all. Moments where I just wondered why. Why? Why would God allow something so hard, something so painful to happen to my mom? Now, theologically, I understood, right? Like seminary guy, pastor dude, I understand that the things that happened to my mom happened ultimately because of the brokenness in our world. It happens ultimately because of the sin that ravages our world. And I knew that death does not belong. It was never part of the original plan. But in the moment, I was still so mad. There were moments when I got mad at God, There are moments when I was sad and grieving over the fact that my mom wouldn't be at my daughter's hopeful future weddings one day. Sad that mom wouldn't be at any more Christmases. And for a season, my grief caused me to focus on the problems of life rather than on the promises of God. I began to focus on the things that were were wrong and the things that were broken instead of remembering the goodness of who our God is and the promises that he brings. Now, I'd only been on staff at NCC for about a year at that point. Um, My mom had been a confidant to me during that season. She'd been a prayer warrior for you from afar, whether you knew it or not. And I had prayed so hard. I'd gone to God with my pain. I'd gone to him with my mom's pain I'd gone to him with the suffering that I watched her go through, and I just I laid it all out, and I had begged that he would just take it from her. And there were even days there near the end where I just begged him to take mom so she wouldn't have to go through it anymore. I was lamenting over her pain and over her suffering. And God's response to my prayers did not line up with what I knew that God could do. In that moment, that's how I felt. His response to my prayers did not initially bring me any comfort. It didn't go how I hoped. And similarly today, in Habakkuk, we find this prophet in a very similar situation. He's gone to God. We learned in the first week. He goes to God and he points out this sin in this people. He says, God, don't you see this? Why aren't you doing anything? 
And then God says, no, I'm doing something that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. And he shares with Habakkuk what he's going to do. And it's not what Habakkuk had hoped. It's not what he would have imagined. It's not how he would have laid things out. It's not brought him any form of comfort. Rather, it's stirred up more questions and more concerns. So today, let's look at those concerns together. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. It reads, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will stand, take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In these verses, we see a couple of things happening. We see Habakkuk using a biblical model of something called lament to deal with a problem of theodicy. Not the odyssey, but theodicy. The theodicy is the relationship between evil, human suffering, and divine justice. So this is when we experience trial, when we experience suffering, when we see brokenness in our world, and we are trying to navigate how does God fit into all of this? What is his role in it? This is the problem of theodicy. This is what this is. And we saw in previous weeks that God's just judgment on the sin of Judah is going to come through sinful, godless nations, the sinful, godless nation of Chaldea. And so God is going to use them as an instrument of judgment and reproof and correction for Judah. And this is the thing that Habakkuk has a problem with. He's going, God, this is not who I know you to be. Why would you use this means to accomplish your will? This is not the first time that God has used another nation to bring about correction in his people. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, God talks about the Assyrians that he's going to use to bring judgment. And he describes them as the fury in his hands. It is not uncommon in the history of God's people for God to use other sinful nations by means of violence, by means of captivity, by means of oppression and war, so that sin might be dealt with. In fact, if it were not for God allowing these things to take place in the lives of his people, it's likely they would have just continued on in this sinful manner, walking farther and farther away from God. Because remember, the issue here is not the Chaldeans coming to be judgment. This whole conversation started with 
God, your people have a sin problem. What are you going to do about it? And it's easy as we read this book to get lost in the Chaldeans and forget that at the beginning it was all about God's people not following him rightly. And so this entire conversation is about how do we bring God's people back to his heart. Pastor Dave helped us to see last week, God is always working to eradicate sin and restore hope. And so our problem comes when we don't enjoy or agree with how he accomplishes that. We get all up in arms, right? And so does Habakkuk here. And so we ask questions like this. When things don't go our way, when we start seeing brokenness in our world, we ask questions like, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? You heard that one? To paraphrase R.C. Sproul's answer to that question, God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people because there are no good people. Us included. God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people because there are no good people. Romans 3, 10 through 12 would remind us that there are none righteous. Not even one. Not you, not me. There are none righteous. There are no good people. Sproul continues, he says, bad things only happen to a good person one time. And he went to the cross on our behalf willingly. Habakkuk's concerns about God's plan in chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, they have shifted from his initial prayer to, God, why aren't you doing anything, to now, God, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to do it that way? See, God has responded to Habakkuk's cries about violence and injustice that exist in Judah and with a coming judgment from another nation that is known for their violence and for their injustice. And so Habakkuk is raising the thought that I'm sure that many of us have as we look at these two nations, as we look at this problem and this instrument of justice, and we go, well, wait, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. We're going to take care of, of violence and justice over here by just applying violence and injustice from someplace else? God, you mean to tell me that you're going to judge violence and injustice in your people by causing them to experience violence and injustice from in Habakkuk's eyes and even more violent and unjust people? And God's answer is yes. God can and will allow suffering to come to his people through brokenness and the sinfulness of the world in order to draw his people back to a right relationship with him. Does this mean that God could cause another world war to draw his people to himself? Yes, he could. Does it mean that he could allow sickness or distress to accomplish his purposes? Yes. Does this mean that God could allow hardship in your life to cause you to recognize your dependence on him and your need for him? Yes. Does this mean that God isn't good? No. Does it mean that God is some angry deity that enjoys punishing his people? No. 
Does it mean that God is not just or that God himself is sinful? No. No. We experience distress and the effects of brokenness and sin in our world due to the sinful, broken state of our world. And God may allow us to experience hardship and suffering in order to draw our hearts back to him, but God does not take pleasure in our distress. And Habakkuk wrestles with this. He's wrestling with the suffering that God is going to allow. Because that, remember, this is a prophecy, and God is showing him what is going to come. And so Habakkuk is getting this glimpse of suffering that is coming. And so he has this understanding of this, and then God allows him to model a biblical model of lament for us. What is lament? Commentator Heath Thomas describes lament this way. He says it is a gift, a gift or a resource for negotiating pain and suffering. It is a gift or a resource for negotiating pain and suffering. In lament, we are allowed by God to come to him and to plead for divine help or deliverance from distress, suffering, or pain. So in its truest sense, it is offering, if you will, a holy complaint or a holy concern to God about the suffering, about the distress, about the sin that is within our lives. And it is offered to God as a request for him to act on behalf of the one suffering. So my prayers for my mom, when I'm going, God, would you please just take mom's cancer away? These are prayers of lament. When I go to God and say, God, why? When I question, when I have doubt about the suffering that is being experienced. God, why? This is lament. However, lament is more than just expressing feeling to God. It is more than just going to him and saying, God, I'm mad. This is a prayer submitting to a couple of things. It first is a prayer submitting to God's sovereignty, meaning that, God, we acknowledge you are in complete control. And that if we are going to receive help, if we are going to receive deliverance from any of this distress, you are the only one that can do it. And so it acknowledges his sovereignty and his control. And then it seeks his help. So in lament, we can bring our feelings to God about what is going on, much like Habakkuk will. But as Habakkuk will see, and as I hope we do this morning, how we feel about something does not necessarily dictate the truth or the reality about that thing. Why? Because our feelings can lie to us. You ever been there? You feel a certain way about something and then realize you're way off? Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things. So if I could give you advice this morning, don't follow your heart. Instead, follow the creator and the sustainer of your heart. And so what it means is this. I can feel like God is not with me. I can feel like God doesn't hear my prayers. I can feel like God doesn't care about what's going on. 
But Scripture would tell me all of those things are not true. That God does care. He is with me. He does deeply care and is intimately involved with the goings-on of my life. And so I need not to focus on the, prom- the problems of my life. I focus on the promises of God. Why? Because I can know that God is God, that he is sovereign, he is in control, and that God is good. He is my helper, my safety, my protector, my guide, no matter what. And the tension that we feel as we wrestle with those truths, that God is God and God is good no matter what, but we rub up consistently with suffering. We encounter it over and over again. We see brokenness, and we're trying to figure out how do we navigate this. Again, that is the problem of theodicy. That is what Habakkuk faces. So let's examine this morning how Habakkuk navigates this, how he uses lament to navigate this problem of suffering and pain and God's role in it. If you will, look at chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. See, Habakkuk begins his concerns with going back to a very central place. Who does he know God to be? Who has God revealed himself to be? And he starts with addressing God's eternal nature. Are you not from everlasting? The original language here means, have you not been from all time? There's nothing outside of his hand. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Habakkuk is addressing and he's contrasting his theology of God, his knowledge of who God is with the work and the word that he is hearing and seeing from God, what God is doing. And so again, he goes back to who do I know God to be? This title that he uses here for God, my Holy One. Now, while holy is used multiple places in Scripture for God. And Holy One, the closest place that we see to this, is in Isaiah. This is the only place where these words altogether exist in the Old Testament. My Holy One. It is a unique phrase that only Habakkuk uses for God in this exchange. And it carries with it a couple of things. It carries with it both the moral holiness of God the set-apartness of him, that there is no one like him, and it ties that specifically to his special relationship, his covenant with his people. The original languages tie all of these words together, all of these thoughts together into this title, my holy one. So Habakkuk draws on the holy nature of who God is, on the love that God has for his people, and he wrestles with who he knows God to be and what God is going to allow. He continues, he also calls God by the title of Rock. This is the same title that's used in Deuteronomy 32.4. It'll be on the screens for you. The Rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Do you remember the initial complaints that Habakkuk had? Injustice, violence. And so when he sees injustice and violence, he goes back to God and he's bringing these things about in his mind of a God that he knows that is just. All his ways are justice 
a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So Habakkuk, again, believes that the holiness of God and the protective nature of God as rock seemingly to him are starting to stand in contrast to God's use of the Chaldeans for him allowing them to be the means of judgment. God himself described the Chaldeans and he gives a description of their idolatry back in chapter 1 verse 11 which states that their God is their own might or power. That the Chaldeans' God, the thing that they worship, the thing that they place their hope in is their own might and power. And so again, Habakkuk is trying to reconcile these things. He's trying to reconcile what God is going to allow with who he knows God to be. As he continues to navigate this tension, he goes on in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What Habakkuk is contending here is that God is too just to condone the sinfulness of the Chaldeans. And he raises a question that many of us may be asking as we're reading this passage. If God is truly holy, if he is truly set apart like no other God, why would he deal with unfaithful, sinful Judah by implementing judgment from a seemingly even more unfaithful nation? It's a hard thing to navigate. But when we start asking that question, what we do, when we start comparing what we would do to what God would do, we effectively put ourselves in God's seat. We say, God, I wouldn't do it that way. That's great. You're not God. But we like to be. But I like it my way. But we're not God. He continues in verse 14. He says, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Here Habakkuk is drawing back to language that comes all the way from the creation account in Genesis 1. He speaks to the creative nature of who God is. And this unique, beautiful, creative nature of God is used again to present a contrast to where we're going in the next couple of verses. He's brought together who God is, who he knows God to be, this protector, this creator, this sustainer. And he contrasts him with the nature of the Chaldean king who disrespects and disregards the creator's work by taking more than he needs. Look at him in verse 15. He, this he here, in some translations will read, the, Babel, the Chaldean king or the Babylonian tyrant. Okay? So the Babylonian tyrant brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. And his food is rich. This has done well for him. Is he then to keep on emptying his net? and mercilessly killing nations forever. Habakkuk is questioning now this person that God is going to allow to wield his judgment. These are questions that we ask, don't we? 
We ask it maybe not of a Babylonian king, of course, but as we examine our world, these are questions that we start asking. God, why, why would you do this? Why would you allow this to happen? Habakkuk calls into question this king and subsequently the nation that he rules. Because this Babylonian tyrant conquers other nations, taking more than he needs. And again, he proudly lifts up his own name, praising himself with the tools that he uses. And the illustration here is overfishing. That he pulls up far more than he needs to sustain himself. But rather, he takes it all. The Chaldeans have become rich living in the lap of luxury due to their sinful practices, the same sinful practices that Judah is being judged for. And the Chaldean king offers no praise to anyone but himself. Now the irony here is that the Chaldean king is no match for the king of kings, and that everything the Chaldean king has has been allowed to him by a sovereign God who rules over all. We don't like that. We don't like that thought. Romans 13.1 would remind us that there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. And so a violent and unjust king is being used to implement just judgment against a violent and unjust Judah. So Habakkuk has laid all of this out. He's brought all of this before God. Remember, this is a conversation that the two of them are having, unique to the minor prophets. And as Habakkuk has laid all this out, he's going, God, this is who I know you to be. Why would you do this? This is who these guys are. And then look how how he concludes this thought. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. And look out to see what he will say to me, and I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk has been made to see the sin of Judah. He has heard how God plans to deal with that sin through the Chaldeans. He's presented his concerns about God's plan to God, and now he waits for God to respond. Now, before we move to God's response, I want you to remember a few things about this passage. Again, this is a lament This is Habakkuk going to his sovereign God in prayer, asking him to do something on the behalf of his people. Habakkuk is not a defense lawyer cross-examining a witness here. He is not a pouty child ignorant of the workings of God and God's nature. Habakkuk, after presenting his concerns, is now waiting for correction from God on what he might see or what he might hold incorrectly. He's not looking for, he's not trying to back God into a corner here. His posture is, I am standing and waiting for God to respond. Habakkuk is asking God to help him understand what he does not understand about the theodicy problem that he faces. He is seeking God's deliverance and God's direction. And when we come with prayers of lament, we should do the same thing. We don't come to God with an attitude that tries to bend him to our will or back him into a corner. Again, in that situation that we are, again, trying to be God, we're not. Rather, in lament, we acknowledge God's sovereignty. We remember that his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we seek his deliverance from the distress we face. 
We seek his direction with wisdom. God, what should I do? How do I navigate this hardship that I face? And we should also seek his discipline. God, where am I seeing you wrongly? What are the things that I am bringing to the table that are not right? Let me see you and let me see this situation through the way that you would see it. Because I know, again, that God is God and God is good no matter what. So let's look together at God's response. At least the beginning of it. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. And the Lord answered me. Pause here. Isn't it good to know that we can come to God with all of our frustrations, with all of our hurt, with all of our suffering, and that we have a God who will answer. He doesn't give us the cold shoulder. He doesn't just push us away and go, no, you deal with that. He answers. And he answers Habakkuk here. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So again, you have to remember, today we're looking at a very small chunk of this passage. You have to go back to the beginning. Remember, this is a vision that God is allowing the prophet to see. And he's saying, you need to share this vision. Okay? The word for tablets that he uses here, when he says, make it plain on tablets, it's the same word used in Exodus 24, 12, where the law is given to Moses on stone tablets. Now, if you remember from week two, we looked at one of Habakkuk's first complaints in chapter one, verse four, where he says, God, the law is paralyzed. So one of Habakkuk's main complaints is that God, this law that you have put in place, isn't doing its job. And here God uses the same word, drawing Habakkuk's mind back to the tablets, back to the law, and it's a subtle push on him going, let me show you how the law is not paralyzed. Let me show you what I am doing. God's plan to restore Judah will be accomplished. The judgment for the sin of the Chaldeans will come in God's timing, and the judgment for the sin of Judah will come in God's timing. Again, it's a subtle reminder to Habakkuk that God is in control, that God's timing is perfect, and this is something we all need to remember. We all need to remember that. God is in control, and his timing is perfect. You know, for many of us, I think we feel distressed about things in our lives when we feel out of control, right? So, for example, for me, my stress levels start going through the roof when my kids get sick or when Kristen gets sick. Why? Well, because I'm going to have all the right information about how to help my kids' symptoms, how to treat their sickness. I can take them to the best doctors. I can have all the best essential oil combos, if that's your thing. And I can have, at the end of the day, I can do everything right and still have absolutely no control over how that sickness will run. Right? I can do everything right, everything that every doctor tells me I should do, and it can still go differently, right? Why? Because I'm not in control. 
Thamanis, there's geo geopolitical tensions right now with other world powers that truthfully they cause me distress. Right? I have a strange looming thought in the back of my head, and this is just me being very vulnerable and honest. I have this weird thought that wakes me up in the middle of the night that my girls are going to have to live through like World War III or something. And I realize that sounds maybe ridiculous. But there are moments in my life where I just start going through this thing in my head and I start thinking about like, what's the last thing I said to my kids? And I start feeling out of control because the reality is if something does happen, I have no control over whether it happens or not. And I start in my head spiraling very quickly. And I start focusing on problems of life rather than problems of God. You likely have something as well. Something that you cannot control in your life. And if you allow your mind to spiral, all you will do is focus on the problem that is in front of you. And in that moment, you will forget the promises of God. Don't do that, church. Pray the promises of God. Rather than focusing on the problems of life, I need to remember that God has promised me he will never leave me or forsake me. And so no matter if my kids get sick, no matter if anything crazy happens in the world or whatever, it doesn't matter because God is still God and God is still good no matter what. Because here's the truth, and this is the thing we really don't like. I am never actually in control. And neither are you. My family can be healthy, the world can be at peace, and I can live in the delusion that I am in control of my own destiny, and I am 100% not in control of any of it. And so when you feel out of control, use it as a mental cue to remind yourself of this. You have never been in control, and that is a good thing, because you are a terrible God. And so am I. We forget that. And we try to sit on a throne that is not ours and try to rule a world that we did not speak into existence. You are not in control. You have never been, and that is a very good thing. Because we have a God who is, and he is far better at it than we could ever be. Verses four and five present to us a contrast a contrast between two different types of people. Righteous that live by faith and the sinful Chaldeans and Judeans. In verse four, God directly addresses he, the Babylonian tyrant, behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This is a, a verse that we have heard in many different contexts, right? We've heard that over and over again. And then God goes, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his, and collects as his own all peoples. So wine in this passage, we're going, wait a minute, what's, what's the deal with wine here? Where are we going? At this key point in time, wine was a symbol of wealth and luxury. And so this could very well also read, moreover, wealth is a traitor. Moreover, luxury is a traitor. It's one who is never at rest. It's greedy. It never has enough. And here God is reminding Habakkuk 
that the luxuries of this world will never satisfy. But what do the Chaldeans do? It said earlier, because of their injustice and violence, it has made them rich. It has made them luxurious, and it's never going to satisfy. They can have all of the luxury in the world. They can gain it by force and with violence, but it will not satisfy. And he contrasts that with only a life lived by faith in the Lord will satisfy. So God is reminding Habakkuk, again, that true satisfaction, true riches, true rest are only found where? In God. They're only found in him. And so while the Chaldeans may be a sinful people gaining loads of luxury by sinful means, they will receive justice in due time. Again, God is in control and his timing is perfect. But go back with me, if you will, to verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Whose soul? Well, again, we talked about it. It's the Babylonian tyrant, like he's addressing that. It's the Chaldeans as a whole. I think it's also the Judeans. Because remember, this book began with Habakkuk putting the sin of Judah on display. The sin of the Chaldeans is what we've mainly looked at, but in Habakkuk's lament, he begins with Judah, and Judah is not exempt. Those who do not live by faith are those whose souls are puffed up, those who are not upright, those who walk with integrity and faith. So who is righteous here? God and God alone is who is righteous here. Judah is not righteous in this scenario. God and God alone is righteous. Do you remember how God is described in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4? The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity who is just and upright. Righteous is he. Do you remember how we are described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 10 through 18? He quotes Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3 here. He says, as it is written, no one, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Lips They Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Remember what we have already learned this morning. God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people because there are no good people. Righteous people do not exist. God and God alone is righteous. So how then do the righteous live by faith? We live by faith through God and God alone. The only one who is righteous gives us the ability for us to live by faith. 
if none of us are righteous, we don't suddenly grow like this righteousness bone and start doing good stuff. We don't suddenly wake up one morning and go, hey, you know what, I think I'm gonna be righteous today. If you do, that might be a little strange. Um, God is the one who makes us righteous. Look with me in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will. Where are you in this passage? Nowhere. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And here in his response to Habakkuk, God is showing him that he is choosing to draw his people back to righteousness, back to a life of faith by causing them to experience violence and injustice of the Chaldeans. Why? Because God is always working to eradicate sin and restore hope, and God is God, and God is good no matter what. And so will he go to extreme means to deal with the sin in the hearts of his own people if it means drawing them back to him? Absolutely. And so as we face trial and hardship in our lives, it may be that God is using difficult means to draw your heart back to him. I'm not saying that every bad thing that happens to you means that your heart is far from God. Don't hear me wrongly. But there are consequences to our individual sin. But in a broader sense, we live in a broken and a sinful world. And we feel the effects of that sin everywhere. And as we, like Habakkuk, see the sin and injustice in our world and we experience sin, suffering, and pain and hardship in our lives, may it draw us back to the only one who is righteous. And may we place our faith and our trust in him. That means that we can come to God with our faith, with our questions, with our doubts, with our pain, with our suffering, and he meets us there. We learned a few weeks ago, again, doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive. We can go to God with doubt and faith, and he meets us with grace and truth. We began earlier with a story. And God's response to my prayers for my mom did not line up with what I knew God could do. His response to my prayers did not go how I hoped on this earth. See, I had prayed for no more cancer. I had prayed for no more pain. I had prayed that my mom would be able to walk in her backyard gardens again and enjoy life. Now God did answer that prayer but just not in the way that I understood at the time. See, because Jesus endured the distress, pain, and hardship and suffering of the cross in order to accomplish the perfect will of the Father, even though he experienced extreme injustice, extreme violence, 
because of the cross and because of the empty grave, because Jesus lives, my mom is in the glory of King Jesus now and forever. Because my mom had repented of her sins and placed her whole life under the lordship of Jesus, my mom now has no more cancer and she never will again. Because Jesus lives, she now has no more pain. And she never will again. Because Jesus lives, my mom now walks in gardens that are far better than her backyard one ever was. Because Jesus lives. Now, does that mean that on this side of things that the grief goes away? No. There's still days when I miss my mom. But even in the midst of suffering, I can know that God is my rock, that he is my strength, my protector, my guide, that he is my bright hope for tomorrow. Life is worth the living church with all of its suffering, with all of its hardship, with all of its pain and injustice. Why? Because Jesus lives. Because he lives. And Jesus can be yours today. If you would repent of your sin and believe in that good news that Jesus died as the all-sufficient merit for your sin. If you would believe that he rose from the grave so that sinners might be saved and have everlasting life in him. And so this morning, the team is going to lead us. And as they do, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of this and showing you your need for salvation, I would ask you to pray, Jesus, I acknowledge that you are the forgiver of my sins and that you are the Lord of my life. Forgive me, make me new, and he will. So as the team leads us this morning, I also want to direct you, if you are in the spot, I know this is heavy stuff, and it doesn't really resolve at the end of this passage, does it? There's still looming judgment to come. There's still distress. God hasn't just like wiped it all clean and everything is good now. And I realize that as we talk about heavy things, this may mean that you have some stuff that you've got to deal with or you just need someone to pray with. There are red tables in the back of the room on either side and we're going to have members of our prayer team there this morning. If During this song, if you need someone to pray with, they are there to do that, okay? But let's stand this morning. And let's sing in response to our God, who is our strength for today and our hope for tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.